0: Race
1: in America, Where Do We Go From Here Town Hall event presented by the CWR Talk Network and CWR Media Group, America's Voice for Causes, Issues, and Life Empowerment. This event is part of our commitment to keep the conversation about race on the minds of our listeners. It is our belief that before we can begin to come together as one, we must learn to openly express our concerns and fears with one another and only then will we be able to respect and trust one another we hope our event today will go a long way towards accomplishing that goal we also know that it is going to take more than talk and you will receive information about an incredible resource that will help groups and organizations collectively tackle the problem of racism in America. We strongly encourage you to call and share your thoughts. Our number is 917-889-8078. That number again is 917-889-8078. So now, we are proud to present our distinguished panel and our moderator, nationally acclaimed and award-winning journalist, Ms. Deborah Mathis.
2: Well, thank you so much, and hello, good afternoon, uh, in some cases, good late morning to all of America. We welcome you, and thank you for joining us for this important discussion. Who would have believed, actually, that we would be here at this Difficult, tragedy-laden, acrimonious, violent, dangerous, challenging, divisive crossroads This late in the game Years, decades, scores of years Centuries after we have all been together and still have not figured it out Black Americans being accosted, presumed a threat because Maybe he's walking through a gated community or playing in a park with a toy gun, as little boys have since they were real guns, or playing his car radio too loud for a certain white motorist, or selling single cigarettes on the street, left dead, sometimes begging for their lives, sometimes shot in the back as they're running away, sometimes while saying I can't breathe, sometimes left dying in the middle of a city street for four hours. Hispanic Americans, demonized as animals, barred from a country that would not be a country had it not been for people like them, been terrorized by men and women in uniforms who take their babies away to God knows where until God knows how long. Indigenous peoples trying to hold on to sacred land, just a piece of what was theirs to begin with, only to be pushed aside yet again so a few corporations can get even richer. People of Arab descent, automatic suspects, divided, detained, prosecuted, persecuted, because they look like the people who committed an atrocity that we can never forget, although we fully expect them to forget ours. A man in a turban that represents his lifelong fidelity to a peaceful, loving, giving religion, mistaken for one of Bill's other gods, and killed. All this in the third millennium, with soulless, heartless hoarders at the helm of the world's most powerful nation, giving aid, comfort, and voice to the vilest instincts of people who feel entitled to ownership of a country growing browner by the day. Well, maybe this Tocqueville would have imagined we'd get this place. After all, he understood the conundrum of equality. And maybe Gunnar Myrtle, maybe Du Bois, all men who study biopsy this issue. Actually, maybe any of us who've been paying attention, but I tell you who certainly would understand this are our panelists today. We thank them for being here, and we thank our partner, by the way, the Empowerment Program, which provides education, employment assistance, health housing referrals, and support services for women who are in disadvantaged positions. God bless you. So we are joined today by people who have been paying attention, who have been studying this, and we hope can help guide us through the thicket. They include nationally recognized recognized, and award-winning author, Dr. Diana Ramey, Berry who is an associate professor of history and african and african diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Berry some of you have seen because she's been on several television shows including NBC, PBS, C-SPAN, the History Channel and she has also been on NPR fairly frequently. She is the author of the acclaimed book The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. The value of the enslaved from the womb to the grave in the building of a nation. My goodness. Also with us today, Kevin Henry, an author, speaker, talk show host, activist, and diversity consultant and life coach. Mr. Henry has over 30 years of media experience producing educational programs related to culture, diversity, and red hot social issues, which just keep coming. As diversity coordinator for the city of Bellevue, Washington, from 1994 to 2015, Kevin regularly coordinated and facilitated community forums and workplace trainings that focused on community engagement, cultural competence, and race and social justice issues. Welcome. Derek Chang is associate professor of history and Asian-American studies at Cornell University. He's the author of Citizens of a Christian Nation, Evangelical Missions, and the Problem of Race in the 19th Century. Oh, Professor Chang, you're going to have to update that one for the 21st. (laughs) His book examines Baptist domestic missions among former slaves in the U.S. South and Chinese Immigrants on the Pacific Coast. He's also authored a number of book chapters on the intersection of race and religion, and he has presented papers and lectures on topics ranging from late 19th century migration to post-World War II social movements to women's missionary work to Asian immigrants and contemporary discourses of the so-called model minority, and we know what we mean. We have with us also Mara Sweeney, the great author, podcaster, and international speaker who's been featured on NBC, BBC, European TV, and African print, plus hundreds of radio shows and podcasts. She's distinguished by her living, happy, inside-out philosophy and was originally Ambassador of Happiness, named that by the UNESCO Center for Peace, when she was invited to speak at the inaugural Nelson Mandela Day celebrations, Mara is a global traveler who has mentored incarcerated teens and volunteered for youth literacy programs. Her central focus is inspiring others toward greater influence and leadership through self-awareness and personal responsibility. Chandra Brooks, some of you probably know of her already, also known as the socialpreneur, she is the former vice president of the NAACP. Need I say more? She's a graduate of Emerge California, a political training program for Democratic women. She is also an appointed commissioner of Santa Clara County's Commission on the Status of Women, of, Status of women and Girls. And she's been elected a delegate to the California Democratic Party. So we have a true activist here. Her passion is community, civil rights, social justice, improving voter outcomes and civic engagement within communities of color and empowering women to live to their fullest potential. And finally, Shannon Martinez, who is a volunteer with Life After Hate. Amazing. A leading organization that is dedicated, get this, to helping people leave white supremacy groups. She is U.S. regional coordinator for the Against Violence and Extremism Network, which is the largest worldwide organization made up of former gang members and former extremists of all ideologies working together to prevent and counter violent lifestyles and extremism, as well as assisting formers While and after they disengaged, she was a victim of sexual assault at age 14 and never quite was able to meet her parents' expectations. So she sought out other angry teens, but by the time she was 16, she was a skinhead spouting white supremacist rhetoric, giving stiff-armed Nazi salutes and tagging public property with swastikas. But fortified by the love of an adopted family, She left the skinheads behind, and today she's helping others do the same as part of an emerging U.S. movement that we hear too little about. But boy, don't we need! Thank you all for listening to this. If you weren't so accomplished, this wouldn't have taken so long, by the way. But uh, we thank you all for being for the wonderful work you've already done and for taking time out of your schedules to be with us today. So if I may begin with the two historians among us, Dr. Berry and Professor Chang, where are we now, knowing where we have been? How would you describe the condition, the status of race relations of the United States of America on this Juneteenth day, uh, 2018?
3: Well, this is Dr. Berry. I I would say that we are... If we, Because I look at things from a historical perspective, this the history of race in this country ebbs and flows, and the tensions ebb and flow as well. And I think we're in a period of great tension um, because of a number of things that I know we'll cover over the course of this conversation today. But some of the things are we're now seeing things on television. We're seeing things on body cameras. We're seeing things on police videos that have upset us over the last few years. Um, things that people might have from other groups might have thought this didn't happen or this isn't happening now, but we're now seeing that some people in this country still experience racism, racial discrimination, and racial tensions. We're seeing this along the border in my state of Texas right now. Um, but these are not new issues, and these are not issues that just sprung up this year or this month. These are issues that have been part of our historic um, our historic interactions in this country. And I think there are issues that are continuing until we can have uh, conversations like today's and come up with solutions. And part of this, the first step for me, is dialogue and education. Beautiful. Yeah, you know
4: I'm sorry. This, this is uh, ahead, this sir. is Derek Chang. Um, no, and I I just wanted to um, agree with with uh, with Dr. Barry. It seems to me as though um, we've seen a lot of this before in the past. Uh, it all seems very familiar. Uh, 2018 seems familiar in in many ways. I I think um, she's right on when she says that. um, In fact, a lot of what we what makes it feel different is that um, it seems more visible. Right through through particular forms of technology, um, we seem to be more aware of um, particular forms of violence, um, and uh, whether it's through social media or through You know, everybody's got a a a camera on their phone. Um, So so it makes being witness to these things a little more, uh, a little easier. Um, Mm -hmm. But but it seems to me as though though we've seen this before.
2: I think we have, well, we obviously have seen it before. And I think that's a fine point that both of you make, that maybe our exposure is more frequent and more constant than it was before because of, the technology and just the kind of the nature of the society at this time but i'm wondering if for if kevin henry for example found my open too angry uh because <laughs> I, I gave this uh this this rundown of just some some recent events um what did you think kevin
5: well, I didn't think you were too angry. I, I think that you spoke with emotion and you spoke with, uh, you spoke with passion. I mean, there's, this has been going on for, what, 200 years in this country in various forms. And I, I think as our other guests were talking, I was thinking of, like, when it comes to race relations in this country right now, I was thinking of, like, a pot, and the pot is boiling, and sometimes the lid comes off and the water spills onto the stove, and sometimes the lid stays on. But it's ever-present Um, I do think that it spills the the racism and the resentment and the fear uh, foremost spills out, especially when it comes to things like Confederate statues, police shootings, when it comes to a group like Black Lives Matter, um, which I understand the reason that organization exists, but some people think who aren't black, they think, well, if Black Lives Matter... It's an anti-white organization. So I agree with all of our guests that what's important is for people to start listening to each other and have a dialogue uh, um, without as much emotion as possible and just start trying to understand where everyone is coming from on an individual basis. I think that's so key. Otherwise, that pot is just going to explode at some point.
2: Chandra, how do you have that conversation right now, considering how um, balkanized the country is, and and everyone has seemed so hidebound to their doctrines. How do you even have a decent conversation?
6: Yeah, that's definitely a challenge to get people to the table um, to have these discussions, but it's definitely possible, and I think what we have to continue is show examples of that work, and people step up and out of their comfort zones and not be afraid to say the things that they want to say ask the questions that they want to ask without feeling attacked on both sides or not feeling, you know, feeling comfortable to speak their minds. And I think that there's definitely examples going on across the country of candid conversations where, like, 100 black women of Silicon Valley, where I'm from, and the Women's March leaders, which are mostly white women, are coming together and having these candid conversations um, that you know talking about asking these questions like you know some some women, white women are scared, you know they're trying to be allies and they're trying to to support, but they feel sometimes they're not doing doing it the right way and and then sometimes you know uh, women of color feel that people are coming to the table with not the right intentions and are not saying the right things all the time and still sounding like they are you know supreme and they are you know above everybody else so. You know, mm-hmm. calling all that stuff out and, and acknowledging it, I think that's where we start. It's just baby steps and showing by example. And someone who would know something about
2: really calling it out it would have to be Shannon Martinez, right, Shannon? I mean, you, yeah. you, you, you do not uh, uh, coddle and pamper, <laughs> I would imagine, the people that you deal with in trying to convert them from their extremism into – uh, you know, more civilized thinking.
7: Um, interestingly, um, I I approach those endeavors much the same way that I approach parenting my seven kids is uh, to let them know that certain words, behaviors, like that, they're absolutely unequivocally unacceptable, but try mm-hmm. to convey still that as, my fellow human beings, that they are worthy of love. They are worthy of connection, no matter what beliefs or even just, you know, absolutely abhorrent actions that they are putting forward, that they are not beyond hope. Um, You know, it's a real danger, and I see this so much even uh, within relatively mainstream politics at the current moment where we we are, are so quick to dehumanize and just objectify the other people um, yeah. who, with whom we disagree. And so there's that fine line between saying, hey, what you're saying, what you're doing, these are not okay things, this is not acceptable. This is not what a uh, uh, society that is striving toward equity and freedom for all peoples, um, this can't be part of that. But at the same time, try to uphold the human dignity, mm. and, you know, wow. that, that balance and that dance back and forth between that.
2: Yes. So Mara you you I'm,
0: are
7: I'm glad you
2: until you're, the <laughs> You're the ambassador of happiness. I want you to tell us uh, <laughs> about the approaches to this that you would recommend. I mean, if if the question on the table is how do we even begin uh having conversations that lead to healing and uh rapprochement uh, you might be the one who, who, who can tell us how.
0: <laughs>
2: well,
8: I'm so glad you love me. And what I'd have to say is, everyone should oh, all probably an anomaly. You know, I'm um, a person who has uh, traveled and engaged in 60 countries and counting. And when I came into this world as a little child, I literally saw or envisioned the entire world with every single culture as being one world with one people. They might have looked different. They might have sounded different, dressed different. But I saw everyone as a fellow friend of mine. And so when I use my... um, my mantra of living happy from the inside out, I almost want to go back to the days of MLK who said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they won't be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. So my idea of living happy inside out and specifically living happily as a nation, one nation, even though we're, we're, a multicultural nation is by knowing one another through our charity our our character through our integrity through our sense of personal responsibility and influence Um, how do we comport ourselves, how are we among our friends, our family, our community, is everything we're doing living up to the greatest level of who we envision ourselves to be. And just as uh, Shannon, you were the last one that spoke, but I agree with you, there are certain things that we decide are acceptable and unacceptable. You're a mom of of, of seven, and you were saying that you're modeling that for your kids. So what I do in everything, everywhere I go, Whoever I'm with, I model the very world and the very humanity I wish to see elsewhere. And in most cases, it just comes from engaging with other people as other people and knowing them from their insides and their hearts. So there you go. Okay. That's fine.
2: Okay. Now, part of this means if, if we were to do that, that means that we have to say there's someone who – holds uh, very strong prejudices and stereotypes against a given group, of eth- ethnic group, religious group, racial group, gender.
3: Um,
2: we have to, if we're going to approach them, then we have to give some room for uh, why they believe the way they do, I guess in order to begin the real conversation. Mm -hmm. We can't just start attacking about this is the way you ought to think, this is why you ought to accept me. They don't. We need to get to why they don't. Is that correct? Can we agree generally on that? Yes.
8: Yes. Yes.
2: Okay. Then how in the world? um, There are people right now who are imposing what I consider to be a pure domestic atrocity. I think there has been, this is now the fifth one, domestic atrocities. I'm not talking about things that the United States government has done outside of its own borders. But domestically, we had enslavement. We had uh, genocide, confiscation, and displacement of of indigenous peoples. We had the Japanese internment. During World War II we had I combine these Katrina and Maria, uh, those hurricane, their victims, both people of color, New Orleans, black and Puerto Rican Hispanic, and now we have what's happening at the border separating these children. How am I supposed to even want to talk to those guys? <clears throat>
3: This is Dr. Barry. I think it's important um, to have these conversations, even if it's difficult, primarily yeah. because people need to understand other human beings and other perspectives and one way to do that is to try to come into a conversation to understand their line of thinking and then provide some counter arguments that doesn't come across as argumentative or as putting them down, but just trying to understand where people come up with the ideas. There was a a Mm -hmm, CNN mm -hmm. um, show last night, and there was a a physician on there, Dr. Alan Shapiro, and he described what's happening right now on the border as government-sanctioned child endangerment. And I thought that was a really – and he explained clinically the impact of this, right? So there's a number of ways. We can approach this through policy. We can approach this through history. We can approach this through photographs. We can approach this through testimonies. You know, there's a number of ways that we can reach and try to talk to people about what's happening today and what's happened historically. But I think – the, the, the starting point is to allow people to understand the full and true and honest history of the United States,
5: which is not as yeah.
3: glorious as the history that we were taught, many of us were taught, um, in our grade schools. And so understanding the truth about American history, I think, is the beginning. So that this is not as surprising for someone like me, who's seen this happen over and over and over again. Our country has done this to groups of people on more than one occasion. This is Shannon. Um, in fact, our, you know, our
7: entire history is predicated upon these acts. Like, we don't exist as a nation without genocide and without enslavement of people. Like, so to, you know, in, in, in my thinking that we have to engage in these difficult conversations because this is the way that we have to teach. Like, if you, the first step in fixing a problem is admitting that you have a problem and America definitely has a problem. So rather than whitewashing it all and making, you know, making it all about independence and freedom, that we we have to talk about the cost of that, and that might put us in a really dark and confused place for a while as we move forward. But from that point, then we can make a re, we can have real progress instead of the illusion of progress in which we don't actually deal with. The underlying um, inherent uh, uh, sicknesses that we've that we've brought with us over to the new world.
5: And this is uh, Kevin Henry. I, I just wanted to say I totally agree what's, with what's been said so far. But I also think it's important that as you're having these difficult discussions, remember to, what is the the goal that you're trying to achieve. It's very easy to get swept away by the emotion and the and the disgust that comes along with. The, the current situation, but name-calling, dropping F-bombs, yelling and screaming on Facebook, and, which is what I see a lot of, uh, cuts whatever conversation you're going to have. It, it ends it right there. So it's very important to really be strategic, and I totally agree that giving people information Historical information that cannot be denied is so important. With with information comes power and knowledge. And finally, I just wanted to say that also be sensitive to the fact that people are at different levels of understanding and comprehending um, our history. So sometimes when they ask questions or take a certain position, it's just out of ignorance as opposed to any kind of mean-spiritedness.
2: Yes, well, certainly. uh, Go ahead, please.
8: Oh, I was going to just uh, tap into what Kevin had just said. I do agree with that. There are people that are today filled with anxiety and fear and emotion. And maybe, Dr. Barry, it was at the beginning that you had mentioned that we go through various ebbs and flows in history. And we do. And right now, people are just seething with fear and anxiety. And I think that when we do dial it back and we give everyone an opportunity to listen to one another even sometimes, when we may not want to hear what the other person is going to say, that in itself is such a healing modality. Most people get to that level of anxiety and even abuse and violence when they feel they're not being heard so i do agree that there is a place for stepping back and listening to another person's story listening to some facts that might make us feel uncomfortable and allowing everyone to have a voice and to have a voice and to be heard
2: and where do we get these opportunities to have these conversations that's you know maybe um we we know how to approach people and what we want to say and what our end game is and what our motivation is. But there's not really that opportunity there unless we create something, I guess. What do we do to make that even come about?
6: This is uh, Chandra Brooks. And, I, you know, to me, I feel that the way we have to do it is to, you know, I think people need a separate leader within these groups. Um, need to step up or call each other out. You know, reach out to another leader. And I think when leaders step up to the table and start having these conversations, and people, the followers, or uh, you know, the people that look up to them, are going to come to the table. So I think it starts with initiating the reach out. Uh, whether it's a, you know, a, a a civil rights activist reaching out to a white supremacist or. You know, to, to, to uh, racial groups in their community A leader in there. And it's one-on-one And then them working together To initiate a conversation You know, because I think that That's the only way I think we have stubborn people on, on both sides that are stubborn And the hardest part is just getting to the table Because we all have very, very strong opinions And we're speaking it on Facebook And we're speaking it, you know, in our homes And at our kitchen tables And we're not speaking it to each other And we're not debunking some of these links that we have towards each other. And we're not having these conversations, I think. So the hardest part is getting to the table. And what I've seen work is the leaders coming together and then bringing everybody else with them.
2: Well, okay. Go ahead, Dr. Chang.
4: This is Derek Chang. So, you know, I was actually going to, I was thinking of something slightly different from, from, um, Following the lead of, of leaders or the example of leaders, um, which I think is, is, is fine, but i, I was i thinking on in everyday kind of ways, having these sorts of conversations. You know, at, at um, I think of these things at uh, at different scales, right? So so on a personal scale, how can I can I how can I have these kinds of conversations? And and I, you know, as Shannon said at the beginning, um, having a conversation with your with your with your children, right? About these sorts of things with, with, with family members, with friends, um, you know, I'm lucky enough to, to have the opportunity to to, to, to teach classes, right? So, so those are those are spaces where we can have those kind, kinds of conversations. I'm, I'm sure churches and other kinds of places like that, civic organizations, um, those kinds of conversations can, can occur. I mean, I, I'm a little, um, I want to just sort of uh, move back a little bit. I think one of the challenges to these conversations though, that um, often the facts seem to be in dispute lately, um, and and mm-hmm. I think I think one of the, the, the real the real obstacles or, or real challenges I guess it's not not just an obstacle it's a challenge uh, to be overcome is is trying to come to some sort of um, agreement or consensus over what the facts of you know America's past might be, right? And as a as a as a As a practicing historian, I have a sense of this. But um, within sort of everyday and um, popular discourse, there seems to be disagreement, right? And so how do you have those conversations to get folks to the place that that we were talking about a few minutes ago? I think that's a challenge.
2: Well, I'll tell you another challenge that I have for you, and that is for someone like me who is tired of talking to people and tired of – Tired of symposia and uh, uh, panel discussions and conventions and kumbaya get-togethers and all of those things where we're talking because I find that the people that I can get to uh, fellowship with in those are already kind of open-hearted and maybe uh, at least are cur- intellectually curious and therefore are educable And reachable. There is another contingent there now who, uh, I'm not saying that they're not reachable, but I don't think the average person who's not some very uh, experienced professional and has some special training, knows how to break through them. Shannon might be someone who knows how to break through because she's done that before, but I don't think the average one of us does. And we want to walk down the street without being called a name or risk being hit in the head or run over by a car or something like that uh, out of some sense of hatred and revenge. So, how, what what are, what is someone like me who doesn't have a temperament anymore? I think I used to, but it, in my sixty fifth year now, I'm kind of sick of it, of uh, being kind of understanding and nice and patient. What do you say to somebody like me?
7: Um, this is Mrs. Shannon. Um, I, I first of all, I would just like to say. I'm sorry as a white person in this country, because I I, I don't know how people of color have any patience left at all. And (laughs) in so so many ways, it's not even your problem to fix. Um, So thank you for the patience that you still have to help us to figure stuff out and try to make some meaningful amends. Um, So much, uh, it, it, I think that there is a huge, you know, to any any white person listening, that we bear this responsibility. This is ours to fix. We created this. We perpetuate it, and it is ours to fix. Um, I I think some of what's going on in our country right now is that there's a the very real fact is that within my hopefully I will live this long my lifetime certainly my children's lifetime, white people will be a minority in this country. And I think that there is some real fear among white people, even unspoken fear about that. Um, I think at the same time, we're all still reeling from the Great Recession. Um, I don't know about you all, but financially, you know, my family still, you know, has not recovered uh, Mm -hmm. from, from that, despite politicians saying that's over. So there's like a perceived... Lack of access to resources.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I
7: just had a chance to to go speak at, uh, to go participate in a symposium, but, <laughs> but um, it was the restorative justice symposium at San Quentin. Um, and so it's all put on by the prisoners and uh, these amazing men and transgendered women who uh, basically participate and run this program inside the prison. It was like one of the most meaningful, momentous days of my whole life. I felt so honored to be there with them. Um, and I, I kind of feel like if, if these guys, that, many of whom are looking at life um, in prison, can figure out ways to um, to work through and understand how they have broken the web of relationships and the damage that they have caused and how they got to where they were, that those of us with, easier things to kind of deal with, that we can totally figure that out for ourselves. One of the things that is part of restorative justice is that hurt people hurt people. For me as a white person, when I see some, you know, experience some kind of nonsense on Facebook or whatever, that I always call it out because I feel it's my obligation. But the way that I do it is to try to ask people what their fear is. All right, you think everyone should have guns, whatever. Like, what, what are you afraid of? If you didn't have a gun, what are you afraid of? You think, yes. you know, we can't, have, we can't have immigrants in this country or whatever. Well, okay, I hear you saying that. What If we did, what are you afraid of? And taking that path and trying to find out the fear that is there, and that is the same way that we help people disengage from radical lifestyle. But because you can't directly uh, argue them out of ideologies. You can help them understand their fears and what they're afraid of and provide a counter-narrative that there is another way.
2: I think that is a superb point, and I thank you for that, Shannon, because that, that, that honestly does give me something. You know, years ago I wanted to interview Byron LeBeck Beckwith, who, as you know, Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. finally uh, convicted in the murder of Medgar Evers some 30 years later. And I wanted to interview him, and uh, he had agreed to the interview. And when he discovered that I was a black woman, he said, oh, no, you
3: know, I'm not going to do
2: it. Well, The thing is, I didn't want to ask him, you know, did you lay in wait? What kind of gun did you use? Who supplied the gun? Why did you do it? Who else helped you? How did you know where Mr. Evers lived? I didn't want to ask him about the details of that night. I wanted to find out what made him. What made him that angry for that long and that viciously where he felt Uh, empowered, emboldened, and I guess entitled to go and lay and and wait and take a man's life. I I wanted to know what traumatic event or what series and repetition of events and messages he got to make him that way. And that's what I wanted to talk to Byron Dela Beckwith about. I never got to do that. So, I am curious about some things, but other things are not a mystery to me, such as why there is a sense of uh, white superiority and everybody else inferiority in this country. There's a logic to that, considering all the messages that have been, been poured out in media, in textbooks, in neighborhoods, from pulpits, everywhere you turn for the life of this country. It's almost freakish to believe otherwise, considering the deluge of messages um, that that says this is better than that. So Mm -hmm. there is a logic to why some people feel the way they do. The disappointment is that they haven't taken that programming and bounced it against what they've seen with their own two eyes or heard with their own two ears, what they've experienced, and come to some other conclusion. They've just taken that original programming and run with it. Anybody with me on that? Well, yeah. yeah, Go ahead.
6: (laughs) Go ahead, whoever.
5: Oh, I, this is Kevin uh, Henry, and I, I guess what I wanted to say is that I think of the word fear has been used several times in the conversation, and I think that is at the root of a lot of racism and racist behavior. I think that um, people, um, in order to oppress people, you need to justify that, and mm-hmm. being superior mm-hmm. or, or saying black people are, you know, two-fifths of a real person— um, mm-hmm. then validates your behavior, because uh, just about any evil deed that is done to another person, be it a crime or be it some other despicable action, uh, usually nine, 99% of the time the person will come up with a reason. They, you know, they're not going to just say, hey, I'm just a racist person and I'm you know, just a horrible person. Sure. It, it's sure. got to be justified. It's got to be backed up by distorted facts. It's got to be backed up by uh, quotes taken out of context. Um, and I think, however, again, I think at the root of all that is the fear of being uh, a minority in this country if you've been a majority, or fear that all of a sudden if one black person moves into the neighborhood, then all your neighbors are going to be black in 10 years, or uh, if you uh, are laxed on immigration laws, then uh, you're going to be forced to speak Spanish at some point in your life. So I think that... Uh, the fear is then stoked, and the and the flames are then fanned by the current yeah. uh, political climate, as well as other individuals who don't want to give that up. They don't want to give up their statues. They don't. They don't mm-hmm. want people kneeling at the national mm-hmm. anthem. It strikes some type of fear in in the hearts of those people. But I think it's also important to understand again where that's coming from and try and have some kind of dialogue about it. Yes. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Can I in
0: here?
8: please? Okay, this is Maura. You know, I heard, I think it was the message you said about uh, messaging. Deborah, Deborah, you might have mentioned it. You mentioned two things that hit me. One, messaging, and we are always getting message from the media. Specifically, we may get message from the media we wish to listen to as opposed to the other media, whatever that might be. And what I have found more and more here in America. And by the way, what we think we're going through here in America goes on in in so many other countries. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. We're not alone in this idea of who's going to be on top. But here's the thing, we can either allow the media or the messaging to determine our reality, or we can decide we're going to find out what reality is. You know, Deborah, I can understand you saying at your age. Sometimes I feel the same way, like you talk, you talk, you talk, you want to get good ideas across to other people, and people are still the same. But instead of the panels instead of the experts, what about the regular people, the everyday people who are working with people who are of a different color, a different religion, a different sexual orientation, a different culture? Why not sit work with them somebody Go ahead and say, hey, can we sit and have a cup of coffee? I'd love to learn about your background. I do this with people all the time. How about if we volunteer in our communities, if we go to the library, we read to kids who may not look like us, and we find out what their stories are. You know, I think with all of us, I'm I'm looking at our photos, and we're all people of a certain age. We can be of a mindset that says, let's let the experts do it, let the system change it, and yes, maybe the system will in time, but we also, as individuals, can be the one person wherever we go and with whom we're ever involved where we could become, whether it's I'm a female, I'm black. I'm Latino, I'm Asian, I'm transgendered, we can be the one face, that one image, that one person that changes someone else's perspective because they knew us, not something they read in the newspaper, not a report they got on TV, not some inflammatory um you know, framed story that's designed to get a particular audience all upset. What happens when we know one person that we thought we didn't like and suddenly we can, through that one relationship, that one encounter, change the way we feel about other people within that group? And I think we underestimate that as our role and as a way in which we
3: can help make a change. Mara, this is Dr. Berry. I, I agree with that. I have yeah. mixed, mixed responses, though, too, because, I mean, I, as someone who grew up in a predominantly white community, I was the quote unquote exceptional Negro. You know, I was that person mm-hmm. that was like different and mm-hmm. she's okay and we don't see race here. You know, mm-hmm. she's you know, we, I, we know a black family. That's the that's the the Ramey family, and they're fine, and they do this and they do that. But that that's a there's a problem with that too, because then when bad things happen, and on television you see a you know a black person or a black family being represented, then that leaves the burden of like you know having to carry the whole race. You know, like this happened, and I'll have people say, well, what do you think about this? Like I have nothing. I don't know anything about that particular community or that particular person, but I know that this bad thing happened to them. I can't always speak on it. And I think that's, I I get what you're saying. And I, I've had to do that. And some days like Deborah, I'm tired. Like I was in a department (laughs) meeting and there was something that was said. And everybody (sighs) looked at me expecting me to respond. And I didn't. And afterwards, some of the scholars of color came by my office and said, how come you didn't say anything? I said, I just don't think fighting that battle today. Like, I've got to leave this office and fight the same, similar battles before I get home. And I just don't like fighting that one today. Mm
2: -hmm. And so I worry about
3: that. And I'm not angry. I'm not bitter. I talk to audiences who don't want to hear me, who don't want to look at someone that looks like me. And I'm talking about the history of slavery often. And, I deal with that on a day-to-day basis, but sometimes I don't want people to think, well, she's different, and then they expect everybody to be like me, or, or, or I can't carry the burden of the whole race. It's too much the Good
8: point. Good point. I totally hear what you're saying, too. We don't have to carry the burden of our whole race. How many of us on this conference call today would look around at people within our race or people within our community that we like and those that we don't like, some that are better than others? we It's not our responsibility to be the one that carries the burden for everybody within our race because there are better people and lesser people everywhere you go. And for exactly. us to... Come up with that point where we have to make everybody seem alike. What if you are the one person that's different? What did you just do to somebody's mindset who only wanted to see things through a single lens? That's the difference I'm talking about. Because to, to make us all one because we're white or because we're black or we're Latino is so unfair to everyone. We are who we are from within and the life we choose to live and the way we choose to deal with one another. And that's spoken like
2: an enlightened person. Unfortunately, I know I, I sound terrible. Not everybody is, but unfortunately, not everyone is. And, and and as as Dr. Berry was saying, you end up. Um, and it's funny. Only the only the burden always seems to be um, placed, or the stereotype seems to attach only in the negative. Um, if if I am an exceptional person, okay, black, white, or whatever, if I'm an exceptional person, I can really sing, or I can really uh, write, or I can, can uh, you know, I'm, I can, I'm, a, I'm a great scientist, or inventor, or something, or a super lawyer, whatever I may be, uh, if I'm an exceptional person, funny. Every someone doesn't suspect that all black people are are like that.
0: Exactly. But,
2: uh, but neither are all I white. Correct. No, no. But here's the point. I'm talking about the common, the common perception, and the stigma and the stereotypes that attach to us. When when there is a shooting at a school, black people will say, oh, while wow, they're looking for the suspect, oh, God, please don't let him be black. You know why? Mm-hmm. Because we know that if that person, mm-hmm. the, the shooter turns out to be black, then that's one more uh, thing that's going to attach to us. Then they go around killing people. But you know what? 99% of the time, of course, the shooter turns out to be white. And yet white people are not burdened with that stereotype as people mm-hmm. go around killing people. So I'm just saying that this, this is the double standard, the duality that uh, – another piece of the duality that attaches to us are these stereotypes, and you do become tired of being um, the exceptional one, as I once said, of, of, of Condoleezza Rice, bright woman. I don't know – I didn't agree with her politics, but I'll give – it to her about her, how bright she was, how ambitious she was, and how she got places, and how intelligent she was, all right? But I said, guess what? Black can-do women were a dime a dozen in, in where I grew up. But you, you didn't hear about all of them because the opportunity was not there. So Condoleezza Rice is seen as like this bright, shining uh, exception, when actually they're a whole lot like her. Uh, just hadn't been noticed before, or hadn't been hadn't gotten an opportunity to shine, and so if I sound like an angry black woman, you damn skipping. And you know what? My, my my feeling is is that this is justifiable anger. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. After all, it's not all just crazy and emotionalism—the things that people like to throw at you. When I worry about my 36 year old son because I can't get a hold of him now, and I don't—I'm terrified because his sisters can't reach him, his girlfriend can't reach him, no one knows. Where he is, it turns out his phone is dead, but we 're worried that something else is dead, uh, because he carried, and it may seem like an extreme and almost paranoid kind of way to think what woman goes around thinking her kid's dead just because she can 't reach him for a few hours. A black mother does the mother of a black
6: son
0: does
2: more often than should ever occur anywhere on this planet and it occurs constantly with us so i'm saying there are things that aren't individual it's not the individual it's not the one-on-one relationship we have with other people with white people it is the action of the collective the corporate cover the institutional racism that burns and so, so. so that's that's something I want us to really get into. Is, is let's get beyond the one-on-one conversations. We know how to have those. If there's somebody civilized enough you know, to sit down and talk with us, even in, in great disagreement, we we might have a breakthrough there. But what do we do about the corporate actor? Whether it is the government, the corporation, the organization, the club, what have you, the institution. <laughs>
4: So, so Deborah, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you brought that up. I mean, it seems to me as that. So I was speaking before a little bit about the different scales. Um, it seems to me as though what you're talking about is is maybe less of a of a um, moral problem than a political problem, right? Yes, so what it you're talking that. about is is a problem of politics, and yes. and um, and you can even go back to the the, the activists of the, the the civil rights movement. Um, Hassan Jeffries has a wonderful ar- article about uh, about this, uh, where he he talks a little bit about the way in which, for those activists, it wasn't about it wasn't a moral crusade as much as it was a, a political crusade, right? Mm-hmm. A, a political struggle, um, and I I think I think this this brings us to um, the question of of you know how those individual conversations might be able to help us think a little bit about. About coalitional politics um, to make to make political change um, mm. to to, yeah. to move to move the dire- uh, the, the conversation in a slightly different direction.
6: This Co- is, uh, Shanda- uh, yes. This, go ahead. Shanda, Sorry, Shanda, this is please. This is Sandra Brooks, and I think the in regards to the question about changing, you know, whether it's government, corporate, um, and these, these structures, I think, you know, this is the reason why I wrote my book is. You know, just black, brown, political, get informed, get empowered, and change the game from the inside mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So really in um, educating, developing our leaders of color um, to get into these positions of power, these people that are making the policies, and really understanding um, that, you know, within our local cities how we can really create that change on who we vote for, whether it's the DA, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's the sheriff, you know, whether it's the judges that we really have input on this. And if we really got active and really, um, you know, t- took our time, you know, if we really want to see change and change it from the inside out, then we really have to take the time to support those right candidates, get those right candidates prepared to run and, and put our own people in these positions that are making decisions that are affecting these, um, you know, these systems that need to change. So I think that that's one aspect that I see is for us to really create change is by really, you know, building up our leadership, uh, whether Latino, African-American, you know, Asian, and making sure that we're we're developing them to prepare to run for office to take these leadership positions. And yeah, I just
5: wanted uh, to encourage
2: oh, I'm sorry. I just want to ask, Chandra, aren't you encouraged by what's going on? You're you're very involved in in organizational politics, um, party politics. Are you encouraged by this big uh, influx of women candidates
6: and uh, women of
2: color in particular running for office? Yes.
6: Yes, 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 yes. I think in every city you're seeing this, especially black women, um, stepping up to the plate and not being scared anymore. You know, for, for women, it takes about seven times for us to be asked before we say, okay, we're going to run for office. You know, it takes wow. seven times for somebody to say, you you should run. You know, you're a great leader. You should run. For a man, it takes one time. And they're, like, jumping in the race. Like, I could do it. Wow. <laughs> but for, but for wow. women, for women of color, it's even harder, you know, and it even takes more time to get us to the table. So I'm definitely encouraged by that because I'm seeing more and more every day. Mm -hmm.
5: I wanted to, uh, uh, yeah, this is Kevin Henry. I just wanted to add, I totally agree with that. I also wanted to add that I think this type of approach starts when uh, people of color are young people, you know, work more with young people, work with children, Mm -hmm. uh, encourage them to be uh, leaders in their own communities Uh, I know that when I was working in Bellevue, I would talk to a lot of corporations who said, you know, we really want to improve the diversity of our workforce, but we don't get the applicants of color. Mm -hmm. So consequently, we have a workforce that's predominantly white. And I know that there are certain training programs that open up um, information and and put on events that expose young uh, children of color to different career fields. So I think it begins Mm -hmm. all the way back when, um, Mm -hmm. you know, people are young people. And encourage them mm-hmm. to, to be our future leaders.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I, this is Dr. Bear, I think our young people are doing pretty well. And I think you're right. Um and when you look at the march, you know, for against school shooting that happened mm-hmm. um and just seeing some of the phenomenal young children that were speaking. Some of them were amazing. eight or nine years old, some of them were in high school. Um amazing. that was to me I that was that was a time for me watching that, I felt hope. You know, I felt like these young kids are putting their foot down. They're 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 telling the adults what they don't like yes. and, and behaviors that they don't agree with. They're calling they're calling people out, and I think it's beautiful. Um, yeah, I I speak to young kids all the time um, through K through 12 audiences, and and you I think people would be surprised the younger generation can handle. Um the truth and and they see it um they've witnessed it it's in their backyards, it's in their neighborhoods, their communities, but they also need solutions um and they want to hear solutions, and sometimes they're bringing those solutions to the table, so we also need to listen to them absolutely and
2: i I have to tell you dr Berry, i agree i I was so heartened by that i I hadn't felt that hopeful. Um, in a long, long time about the uh, the direction of the country, when I saw how smartly, uh, I mean, not only did they have the passion and the intelligence, but the smart tactics and and, and organization that they had, and they followed up uh, their announcement of "Here we are, this look how big we are, here's what we have to say." That's what the march does; it announces your presence. Um, with with the, with um, some follow through by by not only giving notice about what they would do to try and bring about the change they wanted but then making it happen by signing people up registering people to vote on the spot
7: brilliant so, yeah
2: you know in other words our weapon is real see it you can see it right here i mean i i just thought i worked for an organization that goes around the world teaching uh, various tactics and movement organization, and i can 't tell yeah. you how many people who 've been doing this for thirty years don 't get what these kids got seemingly instinctively i don 't know who's who's uh, who 's teaching them who 's leading them, or if it is just uh, god 's grace they know what they 're doing, but they have done it almost perfectly um, and it, it is it 's a wonderful sign to see. Um, to see that, and it ge- it does give a-, a lot of hope at a time when hope is uh, strained. I would <laughs> I would say to put it nicely. Um, I'm wondering about. Can I just jump- uh, please please come on? Come yes, on. I was it. It. Can
8: I jump in here? This is something yes. I pay attention a lot to. People may underestimate it, but I wasn't called the ambassador of happiness for nothing. Do you realize that <laughs> when we When we change the focus from what are our problems to what are some of the good news stories, what are some of the solutions, what are some of these great success stories that we can share, I remember that very vividly listening to young kids speak impromptu in environments where they were around not only just regular adults and their teachers but people of great stature and I too was amazed I'm thinking wow look at these young people we need to focus more as a society as a culture on more of our good news stories on more of our success stories on more of our progress because I don't know if you ever feel it I deal a lot too in um in um how people respond to news. If people hear there's a problem, immediately they are less inspired. They feel more um, downtrodden. But you start giving them success stories, and suddenly they feel more uplifted, but they're also more inspired to and more... I would say, energized to go out and repeat and expand upon those success stories. And people that are drawn to success and are drawn to good news will end up being attracted to that. So I definitely agree on mm-hmm. focusing in on some of the things that are working, some of the great things that are going on in society, because oftentimes if we only focus in on the negative, people don't know where to go. All they see is the problem. But to send well, and hear people. Here
0: it.
2: Here here is where we go back to the messaging and the imagery that comes through. So I agree with you there that I I, would that there had been uh, more focus on the positive and uh, productive and good news uh, about people of color all along in our history books and otherwise because. I mean, we all remember the the great statistic about one out of every four black men will be somehow embroiled in the, entangled, I should say, in the American justice system. Um, and, you know, and that's an emergency, and that's something to talk about. But you know what? Sometimes I want to hear about the other three. I want to hear about yeah. those guys that are yeah. are doing it.
0: And, and,
2: and the focus has been on that one out of four with, and, and completely dismissive of the other three. Now, what if that story about what the other three are doing had gotten at least half the coverage that the one did? And imagine how it might have turned around or begun to turn around the imagery of black men, not only for, for the sake of society, but more importantly, for their own sake. For, for them right. to see themselves as more likely, three to one, to be productive
5: Absolutely. And, and, and
2: to
8: be positive. For them to see themselves and, that way. And how but empowering the, is that very idea? Think about it, right? Think correct. about the idea as a whole by focusing in on the positive rather than the problem. Not to say you want to negate or ignore the problems because they're definitely there. But it's so empowering, isn't it? It changes the mindset. Absolutely right. I I don't know if if – I think it went viral
2: or something, this picture of this woman who took her daughter to the National Portrait Museum and saw the picture, a little three-year-old daughter saw the picture of Michelle Obama that was recently painted, a really glorious and glamorous a uh, uh, picture of her in this long gown, seated, looking very sure of herself. And this little girl stood there and said, I'm, que- I'm going to be a queen, too. And she had her picture taken in front of the portrait, and just her mother said it just changed, this little three-year-old. I mean, to see yourself reflected in a positive and inspiring light, uh, as opposed to, oh, you are you know, you, you it looks like you're headed to jail or the grave. Or parole at best, you know. The other three, the other three I wanted to hear about, and I think it could have made a difference in a lot of young boys' lives who are now grappling with a lot of doubt and self-loathing that might have had a different opinion of themselves i, I I'm, is, a I'm a preacher's I'm a preacher daughter. so I, I I will say that some of the tendencies rubbed off, and I apologize for that but um i'm I'm really enjoying this conversation with with uh with people who can help talk me off the cliff to some degree <laughs> and who is, and, and who I agree with on, in so many ways and who I'm learning from so I really thank you. I also want to invite our listeners to please call in with your questions. Um, we're here for these 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 amazing panelists are here to discuss things with uh, not just me and among themselves, but with you as well. Would you call us at 917-889-8078? We'd love to take your questions uh, and give them a whirl, see if we can come up with some answers, some solutions, some ideas to make this better for us individually and collectively as a society and just as a single person walking down the street. Um, something's got to give because this tension that uh, Dr. Barry and Professor Chang talked about at the very beginning uh, of the program, it's been here before. We've had tense times before. We've had actually times Every, every bit as tense And even more so uh, Than they are now um, uh, Those of us who Open a history book every now and then Will know that um, But as they said they, It ebbs and, and flows And this is one of the times when the pot mm-hmm. is boiling And mm-hmm. uh, it, There's a chance we can turn the temperature down I guess, right? Mm-hmm.
7: Uh, that's the goal yeah
0: yeah uh-huh. yeah we're yeah. trying i'd like to take the
7: whole pot off the of stove like <laughs> the pot off
0: stove so, wouldn't
7: that be
2: great how about no pot would be great. <laughs> no pot for a minute right. that would be uh that would be a little different um you know again if could, could um i'd like to while we're waiting for somebody to call i hope they will because you know uh, all you have to do is give us your first name and maybe tell us where you're calling from. We don't, we're not going to pry into your business or anything. But we sure would like for pre- whether it's a question or a thought that you'd like to contribute, uh, please call nine one seven eight eight nine eight zero seven eight and uh, join our discussion as we talk about some of the. Uh, some of the groups that have emerged in our country just recently, like uh, Black Lives Matter. And what I, I'd like to throw this question out there. What should Black Lives Matter, what if anything, should Black Lives Matter have done differently? I won't say right or wrong, just differently. That might have changed uh, its effectiveness or its reception or its longevity and sustainability or its effectiveness. Anyone? Yes. Go, please.
9: <laughs> yes. Yes, my name is Stanley Scott. I'm with the African American Economic Recovery Think Tank located here oh, yeah. in Jacksonville, Florida. Wonderful,
0: uh,
2: thank I you. I am. Sorry,
9: man. Go ahead. Go ahead, sir. Okay. Uh, I am a, a little concerned here because I thought we were talking about race and what the solutions are. And I'm with the, like I said, I'm with the African American Economic Recovery Think Tank, and this conversation don't went in every direction but the right direction. And when I say the right direction, we are talking about race. Well, what we understand from the think tank, is that when it comes to race, the only issue here that we see is money. Everything that all the research going back thousands of years, it always circles around money and the powerful. And we not we not addressing that. We don't went off into talking about everything under the sun, but race and what it's all about is about rights of no. Yes, can I, go can ahead. I go ahead. go ahead. Yeah. Uh, before we go off and talk about what we're talking about I've been listening to it the whole time here and I have data research and we are a well established think tank here, African American think tank here when it comes to race the only issue is white supremacists and I'm not saying it in a negative way, what I'm talking about is about power. Until, until, we, until we understand that part about power, and when we look at power, we are talking about wealth. Because every issue, every, when it comes to race, regardless whether with uh, any nationality, it's always about economics, money, power. And I'm, I'm concerned about that because no one talks about that. We talk about all kinds of issues going on in the black community, but when it comes to race, that's not really our issue here. It's not race that our issue is. It's about a race of people that for over a 1,000 years that's been controlling people, and that's what it's about. And that is the Caucasian race. Yes, well I, I don't
2: I don't think you're gonna get any argument here from that. I mean we have uh we have like uh, uh about forty more minutes to go and we're kind of building a case here about uh about the I don't think you're gonna get one bit of argument here uh among anyone in this group about the whole white supremacy and white superiority. Um uh dynamic that that drives it all. in fact, there has been discussion of that when there was talk of fear of losing uh, the advantages, losing the upper hand, losing control, no longer being the majority, no longer being able to call the shots which which uh, the white collective collective has felt entitled to. And empowered by And it is a power play There's no question about that So you know what I hate to tell you this But we're on the same page We may have used some different uh,
5: terminology
2: But we're talking the same thing here Now I will disagree with you That it's every bit about money per se Although money definitely drives power and it, but, but it is ultimately about power If you can get the power without the money People would be okay with that It's the power they want Money usually gets you there Um, Anybody
9: else? Well, Before I leave I would like to finish one thing Before I get off the air And listen to y'all My concern here With the African American community uh, One thing I have a problem with When it comes to leadership Why do you keep calling us black? We are Africans If you say you want to Mm -hmm. show us Some respect you want to show some respect, then stop calling us people of color, calling us uh, a uh, black. We are Africans, whether you're in America or over in Africa. And I've been to many countries around the world. We are African people. If we want to talk about getting on the right dialogue here, we need to start there with the education component. And we we'll need to address that, because the issue here that we see through the African-American think Tank here is that the the, the Caucasian community is sick. It's mentally sick and need help. And every time you twist it around and start talking about uh, what y'all call black folks, it's not about black folks. It's about a race of people that's mentally sick and they need help. And we are the only people that can really help them because we have to get our eyes together and call ourselves Africans instead of running around here calling us people, color, and every other nationality, instead of what we truly are. We have, there's over a billion of us in this world, Africans. And we are some powerful people. We do some great things all around this world. and we, in, in, in closing, we have 53, 54 countries in Africa. Please stop just calling Africa as if it's a country. Thank you.
6: Okay,
2: I don't know who he – thank you, sir. I don't know quite who you're talking to about that because nobody on this group is going to make that silly mistake of referring to an entire continent as a country. Maybe he means he's talking to the body politic when he says that. Um, in terms of the uh, the choice that people make of what they are called African, African-American, Afro-American, colored, Negro, black, what have you um, – I think that that's uh, an individual choice. My choice is to be called Black American, and the reason I say that is it's not my Africanness that people mm. recoil from. It is my blackness that mm-hmm. they that they mm. they label and they see and they make determinations about. Um, John Kerry's wife is African American. She was born in Mozambique. Teresa Hines Kerry was. So I can't share that title with her, you see?
0: Mm. It
2: is not, uh, she doesn't get the same reception that I would get. It is my blackness. And uh, and even those who come here who aren't American, who come here from elsewhere, it is their blackness. And, and when they go to other countries, in Germany, in England now, it is their blackness that is, uh, that People want to contend with and make certain assumptions, deadly assumptions sometimes about.
0: So this is, this is
7: Shannon, thank you, my, uh, my my oldest daughter, who's seventeen now. A couple years ago, made a T-shirt, um, and uh, and it said, uh, "If if Black Lives Matters bothers you, but Blue Lives Matters doesn't, then the word that really if really bothers you." is black. Excellent point.
2: And it, so she it, wore, it,
7: she would wear it out, you know, like and and this young she was in a restaurant and one of the servers came up and was like, What's your shirt say? It was a young black man. And she stood up and he was like Yeah, I think he was ready to be sort of offended, you know, seeing like but then they ended up having this amazing dialogue and he was like, I was losing hope. He was like, I thought nobody nobody was gonna care. Nobody cared about me, and he went home and told his family, and then through the fa- magic of Facebook, um, his mom posted about it, and I ended up like seeing seeing it, and everyone sort of got connected through this, and this further dialogue went on. But it's you know just the words, just the word "black" carries such a negative connotation in in our in our country and in our culture, cause that's you know it's and it and it is unfortunate that that is you know that that that's how we. Delineate people, um, but you know, I, I uh, and I wish it, it wasn't. But the reality is, is that that is the first thing that pe- most of us, most of our country, makes judgments on, because that's physical appearance. What about
2: what the caller was saying, though, about white supremacy? Anyone have any thoughts on that? It is uh, the driving force, I it did. seems
8: to me. Please. I did. I didn't I didn't quite understand what he was saying at first, but it just brought a question to mind. I, I heard him say, I think twice, he said that the white man was very sick. And remember at the beginning I said, I look at everybody as individuals as opposed to a color or a race or a religion. When we were talking earlier about the young kids and how they're seeing – things today and they're seeing things through a new set of eyes I'd love to know with all the panelists that are on today as we move forward should we as a nation aspire to a time when, when, every, when the colors are important or when the people and the humanity itself is what's important can anybody comment on that or because I, I just have a hard time ever competing against another people group I honestly don't know how to do it does anybody in this group ever imagine a time period when we would just know ourselves as a common group of individuals occupying the land, or am I too far out there?
3: <laughs> I mean, this is Dr. Barry. I think I would hope yeah. that we're striving for that. I mean, I'm hoping that that's we've been striving for since different groups of people stepped foot, took took land, or whatever. I mean, however you want to describe people's arrival right. here on this right. land. I think we've been striving for that, and I'm saying we, I don't know who would be included in that we, you know, but I think that that's, Everybody. I Everybody. think we should be. Yeah, we're all, I think that's ideal. I would love for us to be in that place, and I think we should hopefully move forward and not making generalizations about people and groups of people, and that's how, we, that's how we got to this place in the first place. That's why we're in trouble today. Um, because yeah. of the kind of generalizations that are made about all black people, all white people. But I, I also want to, you know, remind us that this dialogue is not supposed to be just black and white. You know, we're not. There's a number of other groups of of people who yeah. have experienced oppression in this country, and yeah. who deal with racism on a day, day on a day-to-day basis. And that racism might be different than the racism I experienced as a black woman. Um, it it may be different um than someone that that's um Asian American or someone that's Latina or Latino. And I think that we're trying to, to work through a conversation here to understand where we are and what we can do.
4: Right. Absolutely. Oh go ahead, please.
2: No, is this is is this Professor Chang about the yeah,
4: no, I was, uh, yeah, I was just I was just gonna say something that that you know, I think I think not saying not making generalizations about groups. I, I think we can all get behind that on one level, but I think, I think we, we have to come to grips historically and in our current political and social moment with the fact that something called white supremacy exists. Yes. Right? And that people, that, that yeah. privilege, not just privilege, but privilege and power and money, whatever we're going to call it, accrue, accrues to people um, through a system of white supremacy. Now, that white supremacy may function differently in relation to to African-Americans or black folks on one hand and Asian-Americans on another on another hand. Um, But I think I think, you know, white supremacy is there and and that shouldn't the fact that we don't want to overgeneralize about groups shouldn't shouldn't um, distract us from the idea that that. That white supremacy, which, as our caller indicated, is, is connected, uh, connected uh, in, in kind of intimate ways to, uh, to particular forms of, of, of economics and capitalism. Absolutely. Um, that th- these things exist. And, 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 and we have to be able to name those things and understand those things because ultimately, right, if we want to get to that point, we have to begin to, to, to dismantle these things. So so I I understand that the idea of not wanting to over uh, to generalize about groups, but you know, that, that, that shouldn't, that shouldn't distract us from, from naming white supremacy as white supremacy. Exactly.
2: Exactly. So there is, I mean, there is a bottom, I was looking for something that um, I saw many of us, probably everybody on this call for sure, um, have seen you know thomas jefferson's notes uh, notes on Virginia and the uh damning passages he wrote about uh about uh black people who he knew only through slavery basically but uh he he was writing a a description uh, about uh, uh about us that um, one of the things that always stuck out for me and there were several passages but this one their their griefs are transient those numberless afflictions which render it doubtful whether heaven has given life to us in mercy or in wrath are less felt and sooner forgotten with them now my sense has always been that Uh, it is assumed by a large number of non-black people that our hurt doesn't hurt as much and our loss doesn't sting as badly. And, in fact, the late Barbara Bush, who, uh, you know, may she rest in peace, but she had some moments there. Uh, One was during Katrina when she visited the the Astrodome where people were warehoused miserably for all those days, and her comment was, well, they're used to this. They're used to suffering. Um, And that was a striking thing because I had a sense, that a lot of people have felt that way anyway. Our hurt isn't quite as bad. Our joy is probably over, overzealous. Over our hurt is probably uh, not as hurting. We get over it. It doesn't bother us as much, so we can take it. We're used to being down and out and miserable. And let's think about what Donald Trump said on the stock. What have you got to lose? Your schools are miserable. Your homes—they're shooting up here. It's—you have no money. That—that's the thinking that we live miserable existences, and um, and are just able to bounce through it and bounce back uh, from things better than other people. And one of the reasons, of course, our, our existences are so miserable is because we're not as smart and not as industrious and not as patient and not as creative and not as whatever you have. In other words, we just don't deserve it as much. I mean, this this thinking is heirloom. It has been since the beginning and it has been passed down and then uh Emphasize, underscored, validated, affirmed, it seems, by certain cultural markers. Who goes, who has, when you do a, a, a story about yachting, who's there? Skiing, who's there? who takes the beautiful trips? Who has the gorgeous clothes? Who, who, uh, who are the ones that are celebrated? And who are one out of four going to prison? So uh, this is what I'm talking about, the messaging and everything. It's no wonder, it is no wonder that even in 2018, there are people who believe that we are lesser than and therefore less deserving of and certainly not entitled to run anything.
3: Well, this, Here we go again. Simple, simple racial, racial bias that can, like you're describing continues. I mean, UVA had a story a couple of years ago, I think it was 2016, the, med- the medical students believed that black people felt less pain. This was 2016 medical students. That mm-hmm. comes from a large, like you're describing, a long history of racial bias or racial racialized stereotypes that have prevailed and persisted. That can I can give you examples back in slavery when that same belief system was, was active. And that just mm-hmm. carries over decade after decade after decade until today.
2: Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. And this
2: is what I'm saying is the reason that, uh, to some degree, it is understandable, not justifiable, not excusable, but understandable, explainable. Why people hold some of the ideas that they have because they have just mm-hmm. been getting this this affirmation, this val- this image, this imagery. Over and over and over again All their lives And some of those people who believe those bad things about us Are us and, You know that That is the most tragic part of it But some are us So um, You know I, I appreciate Professor Chang Acknowledging You know The issue of white supremacy Which to me is In in my view, and I am not a scholar on this, I'm just somebody who's been around, um, and I can be as wrong as can be about this, but my thinking is that at rock bottom of almost every policy that adversely affects us, every law that adversely affects us, everything uh, institutionally and culturally and governmentally that occurs that adversely affects us particularly is based on an idea that we are less than, and and um, and that and and that is is the inferiority that comes from white superiority, which leads to white supremacy.
5: And I have a question. Uh, this is Kevin Henry again. Given what you've said, and I think it's very enlightening, is that when since we're out there now trying to dialogue with people, um, promote understanding, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of people have unconscious racism. A lot of this stuff is unconscious. Yeah. There's unconscious yeah. bias, There's, yeah. and and if you talk to them, you know, you have people, uh, rather famous people, saying, "I'm the least racist person you you know." The, yeah. There are a mm-hmm. lot of people. I, there's a lot of people I run into that when I confront them with this, they're they're like a deer in the headlights and they act like they don't know what I'm talking about. So how, how can we, as advocates, get them to see what's going on in their own subconscious, you know, as it relates to race and white supremacy?
2: How do we?
7: Um, this is ideas on that? Go, um, Shannon. I, I think some of it, uh, again, you know, like that's um, – uh, some of this, well, all of the burden uh, lays on white people, um, but there's, uh, you know, it's the idea, of, even like some of the conversation that we're having, um, it, um, you know, that there's some inherent white privilege that that's, that's out there. Some of it I think is uh, the use of stories, um, of storytelling. I had a really amazing encounter um, I was at this, uh, it was a reflective structured dialogue training uh, about uh, conversations involving race. And uh, there was a young woman who, as we were doing like our practice dialogue, and she shared about how her sons and uh, how she was like, her youngest son was, uh, she's like, oh, he's such a free spirit. And she's like, yeah, I want you to be, you know, all the way yourself at home. But you got to, don't be all the way yourself when you go out. And that hit me, like, in the butt because I had no idea that me telling my kids, like, man, I just want you to be the best you you can be. I want you to, you know, be who, who you are in this world. That will, be the, that will make us a, a, great, a great nation. If you lean into you all the way, I had no idea that that was a privilege. Mom, no, until that mom shared her story. And it was, you know, and so I brought that home and I talked to my kids about that. And I was just, you know, like, hey. And so I think some of it is through storytelling. A lot of it is through mm-hmm. um, white people conveying that we're receptive to, like, hey, I, I don't always know um, that. The thing that I'm like, hey, I'm going to champion this. A lot of times I might not even know. And just the idea of like, you know, that I don't see race or, you know, like, well, that's really fantastic for me because I'm white. I don't have to. People aren't making judgments about me. And, you know, like, I'm not marginalized from the get go by my physical appearance. So that's super convenient for me that I can, that I can, that I don't have to see race or whatever. Mm -hmm. But talking about that, pushing that into dialogue. And not, you know, I don't know, not worrying if people like what they're hearing or not. But that's part of how we change the discourse, is that we say those uncomfortable things. And we talk about that. And some of the efficacy that I think that we can all have, because when you were speaking earlier, I was like, of course they don't want us to be hopeful. A hopeful people is a powerful people. Hopeless people can be kept down. Hopeless people can be shooting a corner. Hopeless people can be kept silent. But hopeful people can move mountains because Mm -hmm. they believe those mountains can be moved. And so, like, if if we don't push off the responsibility to, you know, the leaders and other, you know, like the politicians, we can all go to school board meetings. We can all go to county commission meetings. We can all say, hey, I want kids to be reading the autobiography of Angela Davis. And I want them to be reading Malcolm X. I I want them to be reading W e. Dubois. And I you know, I want my kids, I want the kids in our schools to be interacting with these great and powerful thinkers. Like that should be part of what we do in our schools and being at those meetings day you know, week in and week out. We all have local political power as long as we remain hopeful and that we don't see it as someone else's responsibility.
8: Wow, How, this is amazing.
1: more.
7: I could, I could jump in,
8: Shannon. Thank you. Sure. Shannon, <laughs> I love the fact when you talk about stories, it's true. Every, this might even sound a little bit trite, but you're talking about on the community level, in the school board, every single one of us, I don't care who we are, can be a light. We could actually be a light to the greater humanity. Um, Dr. Chang, you may get a charge out of this one talking about you know, the reason white supremacy. A friend of mine from up north was telling me, oh, maybe 10 years ago when her kids were in school, she was very upset because there were a lot of Asian kids moving into town, and they were all besting her kids uh, in school. And she said, Mora, I wish they'd all go back to where they're coming from because they're making my kids look average. And I said to her, I laughed. I said, you don't really think that. I said, those kids are doing the best they can. I said, you encourage your kids to do the best they can where they can. But this thing about I've heard you know today as we've been speaking a lot about this idea of white supremacy there's no doubt the us other than the Indians being here at the beginning we were established by white people nations and people i don't care where you are they all get comfortable they want what they want and they don't want to have to give something up I see this everywhere I go uh, every country they want to preserve what they are but what are we going to do? Can we be a hopeful people, as Shannon, you just said? And can we find a new way to represent what the American space looks like, what the American fabric is like, what the American character is like, so that we can literally be a nation that every other nation around the world could say, hey, look at these people. They're all different. They found a way to get along. They found a way to make community, and that's where I love to focus in because, Shannon, you are right. I watch every single night. My husband and I will watch the news on both sides of the, uh, on both sides of the lane, and I find people on both ends feeling uh, discouraged, dispirited and my whole idea is no you know what I don't want to be part of a polarization I want to be part of a community of people that is looking for what's best in us all and helps everyone to be their best and to be part of what's going on and then you do have a hopeful community you have a hopeful nation and then you could focus in on the growth well you know
2: I am uh uh, I have to say that even though we didn't have a segment here to just discuss um, solutions, I feel that we definitely have uh, hit upon some. And here's what I'm hearing from our conversation that did meander a bit, but this is, it was a conversation <laughs> after all. Um, personal one-on-one contact with one another. Use every opportunity to try and uh, see where the other is coming from and then to educate him or her or of uh, of how that person should be thinking or what the real truth is or what the real story is. Uh, inspire and empower our children to be to be excellent and to be independent and to be, have you know imbue them with with confidence and their history. Uh, to be politically active, especially uh, when it means we can work from the inside. You know, every now and then you see a, a, a building that is a beautiful building, and uh, but you go inside, it's kind of a mess, and uh, you have this great vision for what it could be if you. Could only get inside. Um, the thing is, you have to get inside to, to change the building and to restore it and to bring your vision to being. So, I take what Chandra Brooks said to heart about being politically active and and working your way from the inside. Then you can revolutionize things, right, Chandra? If you want to be, if you want to, once you're in there. And I think reframing the conversation so that that uh, instead of all the focus being on the one uh, of the four, which is necessary to talk about, that needs its own attentions and policies. But uh, the other three have to be discussed. And when people define racism, uh, let's make sure they're not just talking about James Byrd being tied to the back of a bumper and dragged to pieces in in Jasper, Texas. There's more to racism than that. You know, we allow people to get away with, you know, that's what a racist does, so I wouldn't do that, therefore I'm not a racist. And it's like Kevin Henry said, some people are unaware of their own uh, prejudices and their own own, racism that abides within them because the way it's been defined. So we need to reframe these conversations.
7: Sometimes too. Any other thoughts?
2: Last thoughts.
7: This is this is Shannon again. When you were when you were speaking of that, like that is one of the things that um, I think uh, we have to be very careful of talking about what we've now dubbed the alt right. What? Because it's a nicer thing to call Nazis and white supremacists. Um, (laughs) But that they get scapegoated. Um, and people will be, there. it's very convenient, and that's why I think we hear a lot about them, um, is that it's very convenient to look at the extremes and label them as racist and rather than, you know, and it's like, oh, well, that's that. That's overt, and it's violent, and it's based on violence, exactly what you were saying. So when you are Mm -hmm. looking and being, you know, getting up in arms about stories, which we should be, Mm -hmm. That that should be a call to action for us white folks to just be like, okay, why am I, what am I responding to? Where in my life do I see this? Do I still, you know, use racially charged language around anything? Do I still, do I understand what, what white privilege is? Do I understand that I interact with the world in a different way? Like, try, you know, look at that and try very hard not to scapegoat our own racism um, because it's really yeah. easy to do. It's easy to have a bad other to put all of the stuff on that we don't want to deal with.
2: Yeah. They become the repository for all of of that. And we're actually walking around maybe unwittingly uh, perpetuating. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. We're going to take a break uh, before we come back to say uh, our final goodbyes So uh, we hope the audience Will stay with us going to take this break And we'll be back in a, in a few
0: moments
1: Thank you for joining us For today's Race in America Town Hall event A presentation of the CWR Talk Network We will return in a moment
2: Can everyone
0: hear me yes Mm -hmm. yes
1: yes i have got no cues okay that's why we haven't taken welcome back to race in america where Where do we go from here a presentation of the cwr talk network and now we return to the discussion with our moderator miss deborah mathis
2: Well, I believe that we have a pre-recorded interview at uh, this time with Robert Albright, who is the Director of Programs for the Collective Impact Forum. Mr. Albright uh, uh, will be discussing the use of the collective impact model to bring groups and organizations together to find solutions to racial issues, racial conflict that we have here in this country. So we hope you'll sit back and listen
10: to this interesting insight. Hello, my name is Donnell Edwards, and I am founder, president, and CEO of the CWR Talk Network. And we are honored to present today's Race in America Town Hall event, which is part of our ongoing commitment to the causes and issues that the mainstream media chooses to ignore or view as unimportant. In my experience over the years, Discussing the issue of race with some of the great minds on this issue, the singular common thread that has run through all of those conversations has been the fact that there is little or no meaningful dialogue between the various racial groups in America. Too often, our opinion of other races is based on stereotypes, rumor, or the media, rather than fact, based on our having a conversation with someone of another race about who they really are, their concerns and fears and what they know or think about people of another race. That is what today's town hall event is about to bring together a diverse group of people from varying backgrounds who represent a microcosm of American society to openly discuss racism in America and how we can begin to heal and unite. But it is also a call to action It is our goal that listeners, especially those whom we've invited who have been at the forefront of this battle against racism for years, will learn how to better coordinate their efforts and work more closely together for this common cause. That is why I invited today's special guest to provide everyone listening who wants to work more effectively in the fight against racism, hatred, and hate crimes a powerful resource so that long after this event is over its impact will still be felt. So please listen closely for the next few minutes and I assure you it will be well worth your time. Our special guest today is Mr. Robert Albright who is Director of Programs at Foundation Strategy Group, that's FSG, and he leads the funder community of practice for the Collective Impact Forum, which is an initiative of FSG and the Astron Institute Forum for Community Solutions. Robert has conducted various workshops and has spoken at local, regional, and national convenings on collective impact. Prior to joining the Collective Impact Forum, he led numerous consulting engagements with FSG, including a collective impact project focused on economic competitiveness, the development of a strategic learning and evaluation system for a women's health foundation, a retrospective evaluation for a health care access funder, and a year-long project to improve an urban school district's academic outcomes and fiscal sustainability. Other recent clients include the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Ford Foundation, National Summer Learning Association, and Rockefeller Foundation. Robert, we welcome you to today's Race in America Town Hall event.
11: Thanks, Anil. I really appreciate the uh, invitation. I'm so sorry I can't be there in person, but really looking forward to our our conversation and and hopefully continuing the, the dialogue. This is definitely a topic that's near and dear to my heart and looking forward to our discussion. So to To respond to your question, Collective Impact, we're finding, is a really um, promising approach to solving complex social issues. So you mentioned that many of your listeners and those as part of this town hall are are deeply passionate about racial equity, about getting at the root causes of inequities in communities. And we find that for any complex issue, whether it's um, educational inequities or health inequities, Those are issues that no one organization can solve on their own. So what collective impact is is a a recognition that you need to have a structured process. You need to have a commitment of actors from different sectors, from nonprofits, from government, from philanthropy, um, all working together uh, to solve a specific social problem at scale. So a lot of what we work on with the Collective Impact Forum is really trying to shine a spotlight on what does it take to work together effectively in partnership with others, And we find that there are some common elements um, across effective collaboration, and that's a lot of what we're focused on is uh, helping people understand how they can implement collective impact in their communities. And I can talk more about the key elements of collective impact, but a lot of what makes it distinct is that it has several common characteristics that make it it as an approach and make it quite unique and can really help communities achieve change at scale.
10: Okay, very good. Now, how many different organizations or groups like those listening to our town hall event today who have a common goal find each other to discuss how they may use the collective impact model to be more effective?
11: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to answer that a, a bit more. Maybe as I'm responding to this question, I can talk a bit more about the, the key elements of collective impact. One of those key elements, there's I mentioned that there's five common characteristics, one of them is called a common agenda where you actually take the time to get together with different um, organizations, different leaders in a community to get a common understanding of what the problem is and to really agree on a common goal uh, for how you're going to achieve change as a group. So a common agenda is a really important a distinguishing factor of collective impact is what sets it apart sometimes from other forms of collaboration where it's not just maybe two nonprofits coming together to say we want to tackle uh, racial equity in our community. It's truly seeing foundations, nonprofits, government, business coming together. So a common agenda is a really important step. And oftentimes how that conversation starts is that you would have some um, champions in the community. It could be grassroots community leaders. It could be leaders within local government, within philanthropy, within nonprofits or business who say, this is a, an issue that we know we need to work on together. And so you often see the forming of a, of a discussion about a common agenda happening that way. But it's very important to be open to bringing other people into that conversation. So really working through the faith-based communities, working through those that have the relationships in a community to invite others to that planning conversation. So common agenda is one of those really Important elements of collective impact. The other four, which I'll just briefly uh, reference now, and happy to, to take uh, more questions about them if we have time, is there needs to be a, a common uh, shared measurement system, some way of gathering data and learning across organizations. There needs to be a real attention to how are we um, aligning our activities. So, what are the mutually reinforcing ways that we work together as partners to address the complex issue that we've identified in our community? That's the third. The fourth is continuous communication. So, what are the ways that we're building trust among partners and and communicating progress? And what's the ways in which we have um, uh, different mechanisms built in for community engagement? And then, lastly, and we can talk about this a bit more too, is that there we often find with collective impact efforts that there is some sort of dedicated what we call backbone support, which is usually dedicated staff within an existing organization or sometimes a new organization that steps up to play the role as facilitator, to gather data from partners. They're really helping uh, focus on and think about the health of the collaborative, not just of one organization. So it gives you a little bit of a flavor of what collective impact is and how it's unique. It really has these defining characteristics that I just talked about. And a lot of the successful collective impact efforts that we've seen have equity as a core focus that are really woven throughout all of these five elements.
10: Okay. Now, uh, when I was at the uh, seminar that you conducted, one of the things that stood out to me was the the backbone uh, that that you mentioned. And uh, in the seminar, it was pointed out how a lot of times one of the reasons collaboratives don't succeed is because there is no one to kind of hold them accountable or hold hold the group together. And that's the role of the the backbone which is uh, mm-hmm. from my understanding a separate entity from the mm-hmm. collaborative but that keeps mm-hmm. everyone together and communicating so can you can you elaborate a little bit on on wh- how that works uh, and the role of the the uh, the backbone
11: sure happy to and, and the backbone we okay. we definitely see is an important important component of, of this work uh, as you said a They're often um, playing that coordinating role. There's several key activities or or functions that the Backbone plays, so they help with guiding vision and strategy. So if there is this um, cross-sector group that's meeting, it can be helpful to have someone that's asking questions of, um, what are we hearing across the partners? Where is their consensus? Where are we most excited about working together as a group? Um, Another key activity of the Backbone is to... Um, identify some practices around sharing data and lessons learned so that the backbone can play an important role in helping the group collectively learn and improve over time. That's another one of those distinguishing hallmarks of collective impact is that it's a a long-term structured process for solving a complex social problem. You're going to need to evolve and adapt, bring in new perspectives, potentially shift focus over time based on what you're learning so the backbone can help Elevate those important topics. Um, they can also help with influencing policy. A lot of you think about um, racial inequities, a lot of them are embedded in deep systemic policy inequities, and so oftentimes we see the backbone um, thinking about what are state or local policies that the collaborative can can influence uh, through the collective voice rather than just working through one organization. The last thing I'll say is that the backbone takes lots of different structures. So we've seen some um, uh, organizations share that role. So sometimes it can be maybe two people within two different organizations, maybe one person that's a project manager, another person that is analyzing data. We've also seen um, funders like foundations actually house that role within a foundation or just individual nonprofits or grassroots organizations play that role. But it, it does require dedicated uh, staff uh, bandwidth and is not something that you can necessarily juggle along with seven other things on your on your to do list
10: okay so th- there are an independent uh entity from the collect- uh, co- uh, collective uh impact group but a part of it uh is that correct
11: That's right. Usually what we see is the backbone is, um, you know, it's housed within one organization or potentially two organizations, but they would be one of several partners around a collective impact planning table. And so you could think about the collective impact initiative as a constellation or a mix of lots of different partners and organizations. The backbone is definitely not the sole decision maker. They're not the kind of pound the table, make all the decisions type of person. They really are someone that is shepherding a process. They're a, a servant leader. Oftentimes they, they will have a strong point of view and will challenge the group, but they're ultimately trying to get consensus among multiple organizations, among multiple partners um, to, to, to see progress over time. So it, it is an important role, uh, but I would define it as kind of one component of a broader planning table. But if you just have a a, a network of partners without someone who's thinking about the agendas for meetings and things like that it can be challenging to see progress.
10: Okay now obviously and I'm sure some of the uh, listeners are thinking along these lines obviously there's cost involved with uh, this kind of model so are there grants are other funding sources available for those interested in forming a collective impact group to improve race relations that they may access or how are uh, uh, projects like this funded?
11: Sure, so we, we see a, these projects funded in different ways. A lot of what our work is focused on is actually helping the nonprofit community understand their role in catalyzing or helping launch collective impact efforts. So um, we definitely have seen examples where private foundations, community foundations, United Way, uh, public sector funders, so sometimes local governments um, or even state or federal governments often will provide funding to support the collective impact planning process. So, to your question about you know funding sources that are available, um, if, if folks check out some of the examples on our. Website or look at other uh, organizations that have worked in, in effective collaboration. You'll see examples where you know, maybe several funders in the same community say this is a, an issue that we, um, you know, collectively we care about. We want to pool our resources, combine our resources to help provide the funding for a backbone to provide the funding for the programs um, that are working in our community to address something like uh, racial inequities. So. Usually the funding sources look quite different in each community, but I would say it's usually a combination of private and public philanthropy, um, other you know, sources of funding from government, and sometimes even uh, business, uh, local businesses that might have a vested interest in a community. We've seen some businesses also provide funding for collective impact. And by funding for Collective Impact, that would be, again, not only the funding to bring people together to pay for someone's time to facilitate the meeting, but it's also providing funding for all of those partners' well-intentioned and, and, um, and effective programs that are actually being aligned and coordinated uh, across that Collective Impact that
10: table. Okay, very good. Now, what suggestions or recommendations do you have for our listeners who may be interested in getting more information about how they can use the collective impact model to work with other organizations.
11: Sure. You know, the one thing I would say is um, there's a lot of excitement around collective impact as an approach, and one of the most important questions to think about on the front end is to say, do we have the kind of readiness factors in our community for collective impact and asking yourself a couple quick questions like is there urgency in our community around the issue so do do people feel like the way in which we've been doing things to date is not getting us to the the level of impact that we want kind of hearkening back to your comments to start our conversation there does seem to be a unique moment in time particularly as it relates to racial equity where, where there is a lot of urgency so that's one readiness factor Another you know, question that folks can ask around the call to action is, are there champions and leaders in our community who um, want to step up and bring a, a cross-sector group together? So having credible champions that have the trust and relationships is another readiness factor. Are there resources? That's another important kind of call to action question. Are there local funders, local businesses, local government that actually would have resources over multiple years to support a planning effort, because this is not something that you could solve in just nine to 12 months. And then lastly, is there a a real strong basis of collaboration and trust in your community? We find that for a lot of these efforts, if you're trying to get a collective impact initiative off the ground and there's broken trust, if there's failed collaborations kind of in the wake of what you're trying to launch, it can be hard to to get traction. So I would say taking the time to build those trust, uh, uh, build those relationships or strength and trust if it's been broken uh, is super important
10: Robert thank you so much for joining us today and explaining the collective impact model to our audience for those listening who would like more information about collective impact visit the FSG website at collectiveimpactforum.org that's collectiveimpactforum.org. Or give Robert a call at 617-502-6132. That number again is 617-502-6132. If anyone listening is interested in a question and answer program with Robert about the collective impact model, contact me at CWRtalk at CWRmedia.net. And we will arrange for Robert to come back for that program. That address, again, is CWRtalk at CWRmedia.net. We now rejoin our town hall event.
2: Thank you so much, Donnell, for that uh, great interview and helpful interview with a lot of real practical, useful information from Robert Albright And we hope people will call and take advantage of his uh, knowledge and his resources from the Collective Impact Forum. I want to thank these magnificent panelists uh, for giving two hours of their uh, Tuesday afternoon, Juneteenth Day it is, Uh, To this important Discussion one that Seems to be an Endless topic um, One that is a timeless Topic and I guess That will need to be revisited Over and over again I want to thank Dr. Uh, Deina Berry from the University of Texas At Austin The uh, great author, speaker, and talk show Host, activist, life coach You name it, Kevin Henry Uh, Derek Chang, who is an associate history professor at Cornell, Uh, Shannon Martinez, who has uh, helped break the chain of hate with uh, untold numbers of people, young people, and continues to do so. She's with the um, uh, Against Violence and Extremism Network, Chandra Brooks. Of the uh, famous and indispensable NAACP, formerly of uh, former vice president of the NAACP, and now uh, a real activist and mover in democratic politics, in women's empowerment issues, and uh, in community uh, organization and mobilization. Uh, Mara Sweeney um who is the ambassador of happiness and uh, has proven herself to be that way with her very bright cheerful optimism that we all need even um us jaded old folks like me i want to thank you all you were absolutely wonderful i enjoyed this conversation i wish uh it weren't necessary but it is and i think that we um uh, Helped uh, bring a little bit light to, uh, a little bit of light to a, a kind of dark moment in our history that we hope we can look back on someday as a real turning point. So thank you very much for your time, and to the Empowerment Program for helping co-sponsor this really important podcast. We thank you. Everybody, be safe. Peace to you, and we'll see you on the other
0: side.
9: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us for today's town hall event presented by the CWR Talk Network and the CWR Media Group We hope you enjoyed the event and that you were inspired to continue your involvement in the fight against racism We also want to thank our distinguished panel Dr. Diana Ramey Berry Ms. Mara Sweeney Ms. Shannon Martinez, Ms. Chandra Brooks, Dr. We're Derek Chain, lie. and Mr. No Kevin Henry, and day. our magnificent moderator, Ms. Deborah Mathis. We thank you all. Because we are not just another talk radio network as a part of our commitment to causes and issues of interest to our listeners, we will return on October 18th with another live virtual town hall event about ending the gun violence in our nation. This topic has polarized the nation pitting those clamoring in support of their Second Amendment rights against those vehemently seeking stronger gun control laws and enforcement. That event will also consist of a formidable panel from diverse backgrounds with varying opinions about how to solve the gun violence that is engulfing our nation. We also hope to have some very special guests. So, we hope you will return to join us in our efforts to end the gun violence in America on Thursday, October 18th. The time will be announced later, so visit our website and sign up for our newsletter at CWRTalkNetwork.com. Thank you again for your support. And have a good evening. Catch all the hair
0: But they don't have so very long Before their judgment day So won't you make them happy Before they pass away